in Daniel chapter 3 as we continue to look at our living countercultural lives in the midst of exile, in the midst of living in a land that is no longer faithful to the Lord, what does it look like to be believers in Babylon? We pick up in chapter 3, it's a long passage, 30 whole verses, and so uh, try to stick with me. I talk fast, and when I get long passages, I go even faster. So um, I'm going to try to slow it down as best I can while it's at the same time moving us through. Pick up in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar had made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth not 6 cubits, 90 feet and 9 feet wide is essentially what that is. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then... Rather repetitively, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Are you clear that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up an image? And whoever does not fall down and worship immediately, they shall be cast into burning, fiery furnace. How's that for motivation? Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We shift now in verse eight. Now, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man that hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom have you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Bab- Babylon. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the, the worship that I have made, well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, firing furnace." Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown to the burning, fiery furnace. 
Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire actually killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, abound, into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Their hair of their heads was not singed. Their clothes were not harmed and no no smell of fire had come upon them. Sorry, I lost my place. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Holy cow, that was long and repetitive. But what you heard there is about faithfulness in the face of death. Faithfulness to the point of death. A faithfulness that would make you fully prepared to die. Joseph Sawn, he was a man who was fully prepared to die. And he was prepared to do so in the summer of 1977 when Romania was still under Ceausescu's dictatorship and communist rule. And during that summer, Joseph, Joseph Sawn met a, a, an officer from the secret police at a restaurant of a fairly nondescript Romanian hotel. And the officer had pledged to do what no previous secret police had been able to do with threats or bribery, and that was to silence Joseph Son from preaching the gospel. He pledged to do this by promising Joseph Son a job, a secular job in the government of some prominence in exchange for Son's silence. Turning down the job, though, Joseph knew surely meant time in a prison camp and most likely death. And without flinching, here's what Joseph Son's reply was to the proposal from the secret policeman. I told the man, he said, I'm ready to die. You said you were going to finish me as a preacher. Well, I asked my God though, and he wants me to continue preaching. Now I have to make one of you angry, you or God. And I've decided I'd rather make you angry than make God angry. I know that you cannot abide by this opposition and you will probably kill me, but I've accepted that. And you should know that I've put everything in order and I am prepared to die. But I want you to know that as long as I am free, I will preach the gospel. The response of the officer was to let Joseph Son go. Son later wrote this, the officer made up his mind that if I was willing to go and die for this, then I should have it. And for another four years, until the government finally exiled me out of the country, I continued to preach without being disturbed because that man decided that I should be free because I was simply ready to die for it. 
Now, if you're like me, you grew up hearing stories like that in church and you go, that's the kind of guy I wanna be. I wanna be faithful like that. And I do wanna be faithful like that. I want you to be faithful like that. Faith, faithful when you face the furnace. Faithful when you face the furnace. I wanna be faithful in the fire, whether that fire comes from cultural pressure to be quiet about the good news of the gospel or to bow to the idols of this particular land or if the furnace is suffering of another kind. The thing about the furnace is you don't know necessarily when or how it may come. The furnace could be the day that the acceptance in a fraternity means bowing to the pressure to participate in overindulgence of various kinds or to participate in the denigrating of women to the sum of their body parts. That could be where the pressure comes from in the furnace. Or the furnace could be the day that the doctor says, I don't hear a heartbeat. The furnace could be the day that success at work and the idol of the bottom line involves cutting corners or overcharging clients or lying to clients. Or the furnace could be the day that you take your child to a treatment center for addiction. The furnace could be the ease of a nice relationship with a sibling or a family member who demands not just full acceptance but full approval of their sexual lifestyle. Or the furnace could be the day that you realize that the physical pain that you are in is never going away. And the call for the Christian, no matter what the shape or the the scope of the furnace is, is to be faithful. It's faithfulness. And the book of Daniel is a story of men who are faithful in the face of incredible pressure. In the face of the furnace, they are men living and serving in exile in Babylon. And they have been able to seek the good of Babylon and to be faithful to God while also serving the culture around them. But now the furnace heats up, so to speak, perhaps sevenfold. And so this story shows us some keys for us when the furnace the furnace of life heats up. Here's your keys. First is this, the resistance. You gotta be resistance. It's the resistance of the faithful in the face of the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, just to give you some understanding of what's going on here, he's built a 90-foot image, nine feet wide, go big or go home, right, Nebuchadnezzar? And he surrounds it, as is made very clear, with an orchestra of various instruments, and he gets together all the who's who of Babylonian society. All the power players are there. And, and everyone is to bow when the music plays. And he just adds, in case that pressure is not enough, he says, if you don't bow, I burn you to death. So that's clear. The music plays, you go down. Now, why did Nebuchadnezzar do this? Now, that's very actually quite interesting. Nebuchadnezzar is not actually trying to get them to worship a particular god. This god has, this image has no name. He, it is actually not even an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. What is going on is Babylon is a group of people, it's an empire of various cultures and various ethnicities and nations that have their various gods. But what this thing imaged, this image represented was simply the full power of Babylon. What he is communicating here is that, listen, you can serve your gods as long as Babylon remains number one. He is spreading his empire and he wants peace. And so he goes, what's the unifying national identity that we can all rally around? And so he says, listen, here, we rally around this. Nebuchadnezzar wants to be comfortable with his power. And so therefore, that means no one can claim exclusivity. It means everybody needs to bow to the power of Babylon and bow to to this image that he has created. You can have your other gods. 
as long as you say that they're not better than Babylon. Now this sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? The God of this age, we might call it philosophically, is the idol of pluralism, which demands that our faith be subservient to the fact that we all just want to get along. And meaning our faith is not to enter the public square, or if we do enter the public square, that our faith is to be on the same plane as everybody else's. You go along to get along. You're not to to claim exclusive truth or that your God is of any greater value than the other gods of this world. Let me give you an example of this. A few years ago, the dean of students at Stanford University forced a group of Christian students to stop evangelizing on their campus. He said this to them, you're fine to be Christians and to gather together weekly to worship, but you are not allowed to try to convince others that they can only be saved through Jesus Christ. For, and he quotes, and this is a direct quote, all faiths are equally valid religions. This is the spirit of the age. It's fine to worship Jesus, as long as you bow to the spirit, to the statue of pluralism that says all religions are equal, we're all just kind of doing what we do, and that's just fine. And therefore, our society says, for example, you're free to get married in the traditional way you want, and you can reserve sex for the marriage bed only, and you can be abstinent if that's your thing, you weirdos, but how dare you label somebody else's sexual preferences as sin? How dare you not bow to my sexual preferences? And this is being enacted not simply in the cultural, the zeitgeist of our age, it's, in, it's happening in our laws as well. In 2021, the Equality Act was passed, which many lawmakers believe will actually ultimately make it such that churches could be fined for holding the views that we have on sexuality. You can have your Christian convictions, but keep them in the closets. And if we demand to have membership on your staff or in your church or for you to do various things for us, well, you can't actually say anything about it then either. Under pluralism, you can tolerate anything except, of course, the person who insists that there is only one God. That is intolerable. The tolerance, this is a tolerance that can lead to fiery furnaces. And so there's immense pressure on these three men. And do you see it? It's enacted in the king's law, but it's not just that. All the rulers of the world are there doing it. Everybody's bowing. And not only that, but there's all this pomp and circumstances. The cultural elite are doing it. And so if you don't do it, you're going to have a furnace to face, whether it be a public pressure or a literal furnace in this case. And yet, what do these men do? They resist. They resist. There's a famous book on, called Christ and Culture that outlines various ways in which Christians the stance that they can take in regards to culture, and it gives a bunch of different options. The one that has been traditionally uh, owned by many, in particular of us, reform types is is called Christ-transforming culture. But there's another one called Christ-against-culture. And anybody who has any realism is this, is that at some point in some places, yes, the goal is to transform the culture, but there might be some places in which you must stand as a Christ follower against culture. That there's places in which you say, not this, I will resist this. These men will not give in. And they have prepared themselves to face the cost for the central revealed truth of their faith. And what is the first commandment that God gives his people? Deuteronomy chapter four, Verse 35, to you it has been shown that you might know the Lord is God and there is none beside him. And the first commandment is this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall bow to none other. 
And therefore the call and the example of these men is not to compromise to the clear commands of God. Rosaria Butterfield, she was a professor at Syracuse University. She was an atheist, a practicing lesbian, and she was the chair of gay studies at that university. And then she met Jesus. She became a follower of Jesus, and she actually married a pastor, poor woman. And she writes of the pressure that she has come under because of now her change in stance on the ethics of sexuality. And she writes, she writes of this encounter. Recently, the pastor of a well-respected church asked me to meet with a woman who was part of his counseling staff. And so I entered her office, and this counselor directed me to a comfortable chair. And the counselor said, tell me, tell people. Oh, she said this, Rosaria, I have a simple request. I want you to change your message. And Rosaria asked this, what do you want me to change in my message? And the counselor says, tell people that it is only your opinion that homosexual practice is a sin. Rosaria responded that she was not smart enough to have such an opinion. But that this is the position of the inspired word of God and it has been passed down through the generations of the church. It has been handed to us from the scriptures and it has been received by all of church history. And so Rosaria went on this way, that changing my message would deny the plain meaning of the Bible and the testimony of the church. And she went on to write, that from the contemporary perspective, this counselor's request of me was completely reasonable. Just own this position of simply being your personal point of view. Proclaiming something that is a universal truth to be a mere matter of personal preference is a lie. And so we resist, and we must resist. Because you see, if we don't experience some place where you are feeling the pressure of resistance, then it means that you are already assimilated and absorbed. The pressure we face now is far more subtle, actually, than what these men faced. There's something actually easy about what they faced. Bow or die. What we face is simply an undercutting, a pressure that is to be absorbed under these things. And the pressure we face is subtle in our business practices and our own personal practices, the way we live our family or spend our money. Uh, To be understand this, if you're a business person, you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and yet your business practices do not reflect it, then you are being absorbed. If you say, pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. You, know, you don't know how the real world operates. It is dog-eat-dog out there. My competitors cut corners and they, they, they undercut the regulations and they cheat on their taxes and they lie about what they, the products that they offer and they do shoddy work. And if I, if I don't do these things, then, well, I'm gonna fall behind. And that is the bowing down to a corrupt capitalism. We see in our sexual ethics as well. And we see Christians bowing down in all sorts of ways. Yes, in how we view our greed and money, but also in sexual ethics. There's a massive study that was done a number of years ago of 18 to 23 year old young men. And they divided the young men into two groups. Those who had been raised in a Christian household where the sexual ethic was taught, do whatever you want, that's fine. And then the other was a bunch of men who were raised in Christian households. So non-Christian, do whatever you want. In a Christian household where the moral sexual ethic was taught, no sex is saved for the covenant of marriage and only there. And so then it asked these young men this question, how many of them had remained abstinent until the age of 18? And here's what they found. The first group had found that only 23% of them, that is those who had grown up in a non-believing household where the moral, biblical, sexual ethic is not taught, only 23% of them had remained sexually abstinent. 
And then they asked the same questions to those who had been taught that sex outside of marriage was a sin and that sex was to be saved for marriage and marriage only. You know how many of them had remained absent? 28%. A 5% difference. A 5% difference. It is a minimal, it is a decimal point. It's within the standard deviation of essentially being the same exact thing. And this is the effect of a pluralistic culture in which it looks and communicates to everyone, do what you want as long as you don't tell other people what to do. We go to church and we call ourselves Christians, but our outward behavior simply often conforms to the culture around us, whether it be sexually or in our business practices, in our generosity, in the way we live life. And so the call, brothers and sisters, is to be resistors, to be resistors. There was a woman named Diet Emin. It's a rough name. But she was in uh, Holland in the 1940s when Hitler invaded uh, that country. In Holland in 1940, the, the Dutch did not believe that, that, that Hitler was going to invade. They, they had remained neutral in World War I, and so they thought, surely he's going to leave us alone. And then, and then he broke that promise, and he invaded Holland. But even then, they thought, well, he's going to go easy on us. Most of the people in Holland thought he was going to go easy because they were an Aryan people, according to Hitler. And so they thought, well, that'll be, we'll be okay. Just do what he says. Let the Nazis do what they're going to do and, and kind of just go along. But the church of Holland, particularly the Reformed church there, understood that there was a group of people who were going to be in deep trouble with the Nazis' arrival. And that is, of course, the Jewish people. At the beginning of the war, there was 140,000 Jewish people in Holland when Hitler invaded At the end of the war, 107,000 of them were dead. The only reason all of them were not dead was because of those who chose to resist. Like the Tim Boone family, who you may have heard of. Well, Diet Emin and um, her um, fiancé, a guy named Heim Seitzma, were prepared to be married when Hitler invaded. And yet, as soon as Hitler invaded, they joined the resistance movement and they began smuggling Jews into the countryside and hiding them in basements and cellars and caves. And they would steal ration cards in order to get food for those that they were hiding. But ultimately, they were found out. And they were both transported to concentration camps. And Heim, in his last letter to his wife, he wrote this on the, uh, the, the railroad, the, the, the train that was taking him to the concentration camp on, the, on a card, on a, on a napkin. And then he threw it out of the, the window of the train. It was found and given to diet. He said this, darling, don't count on us seeing each other again. Here we see again that we do not decide our own lives. Even if we don't see each other again on earth, we will never be sorry for what we have done in resisting that we took a stand and no diet that of every last human being in this world, I love you most. I write about diet in an article in which it is simply called, she's entitled, The Resister. Are you a resister? And have you chosen the place where you must resist? Don't think that resistance was only for those under a Nazi rule in World War II. There is a resistance that has been going on for thousands of years, and it's called the Church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God in this world. To say, I will not bow the knee to anything but Jesus. Will we resist? So they resisted. And they were obedient, but they resisted and they were obedient because they understood something about their God. And this is the second thing you're going to need. If you're going to be faithful in exile and faithful in the face of a deadly furnace, you're going to have to know who your God is. And that is the God of the faithful. 
Nebuchadnezzar asks this question in verse 15. But he says this, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who's the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, Daniel and the three men respond, and the response gives the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's question. And they display that behind their faithful resistance is a fine-tuned theological understanding and a submission to who their God is. They said this in verse 16, reading through verse 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, what do they say about who their God is? They make a couple of very clear claims here. The first is this. Our God is able to save. Of course he is. Who made fire in the first place? It wasn't cavemen who were beating two rocks together who discovered it. God designed fire. And so the same God who made the sea and who rescued Israel through the sea is the same God who made the fire. And therefore, they know he could save us in the fire. But they go on, don't they? And they say something that is theologically nuanced that we really need to grab hold of. What do they say? They say firmly that they have confidence that God is able. And they say that we also, we, have, we believe actually that God is probably going to save us in this instance. But then they say this, three words. But if not. But if not, we will obey him and not you. Now this should not be taken as a sudden collapse in doubt and uncertainty as if you're supposed to just like every prayer time go, well, if the Lord wills after you've just asked for him to heal you. As if this is just a cover for our doubt. That's not what's going on here. It's not a loss of faith or preparing for the worst just in case. Rather, it is a continuing affirmation of complete faith in God while leaving room that their God is free to do what he wants and they have to submit to his will. The three friends were saying, of course God is able to save us from fire. <laughs> but God is still God. And he is sovereign in his wisdom as well as his power. And he may choose not to save us. But even if God does not deliver us from the furnace, we will go on being totally committed and trusting in him and him alone. Faith in the furnace is confidence, yes, and God's ability to deliver, but it is not presuming that he will. I've seen so many Christians who say something like this. We know God is going to answer this prayer. And you want to go, Really? Do you know that? Do you really know what God's answer is? Do you know what that is when we say that? Ah, that is not faith. That is actually faith, not in God, but in your agenda. It's faith in the, 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 this, your feeling of faith. Now, they fully expected a miracle, but they would serve God with or without one. They declared total faith in God's ability and submission to God's sovereign plan. This is theologically nuanced. You see, the understanding they had of God's was, God, God was this, was God may not always rescue you from death. He may not. From sickness and poverty, he may not rescue you. But he will always, because he is able to save, rescue you through death. Rescue you through death. Understand this, because of the resurrection, we are a people who can face death. Whether, the resurre- whether he provides today with that resurrection or it's the resurrection to come. Joseph Sawn that I referred to earlier, was 
interrogated another time by another secret police officer and the officer had a loaded gun in his face and Joseph Son wrote this, when he threatened to shoot me, I smiled and I said, sir, don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory? You cannot threaten me with glory. Your supreme weapon is my killing and my supreme weapon is dying. And because of this, Christians, we are fireproof. But if not, they were fireproof because their faith was in the right object and they knew that God would either deliver them from the fire or deliver them through the fire, through the fire. So understand this, how you approach God as you face the furnace of your life. Understand that God is sovereign and that he is able and that he does what he wills and this will actually shape your prayer life and it will help you face the furnace. Here's how you might pray in light of this. Lord, I believe that you're able to protect me and my family from all danger and illness, and I pray that you will. But if not, I will not bow down and serve the gods of fear and control. Lord, I believe that you're able to preserve my reputation and my job if I take a stand for what I believe is right and just. And I pray that you'll preserve my reputation, but if not, I will not bow down to bitterness or to serve the God of animosity. Lord, I, pray that you, I believe that you're able to heal my spouse and to restore in them a joyful, to restore a loving marriage partner to me and a marriage that is full of intimacy and connection. That is what my heart desires and I pray that you will, but if not, I will not bow and serve the gods of despair and lovelessness. Lord, I believe that you're able to help me find a life partner and enjoy the gifts of marriage and family and I pray that you will, but if not... I will not bow down and serve the gods that marriage is my identity. The but not is not a doubt of belief. It is the humble acceptance that your God is trustworthy and it's bowing to knee to his will over your life. They knew their God. They trusted their God and therefore they were able to face the furnace. Last thing, if you're gonna, if you're gonna face the furnace of this life, whether it be the cultural pressures, the pressures of suffering, you need fellowship. The fellowship with the faithful. Verse 25, it says this. Nebuchadnezzar throws him in the, in the fire. He's really ticked off. And then he looks up and he says, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar has to check to see if his contacts are in. Maybe the smoke has gotten to my eyes. And he, he mentions a matter of maths. There's four dudes, not three. Usually when you put people in fire, they decrease in number, not increase in number, uh, from my understanding. And then there's this whole issue of freedom. These guys are walking around free and unbound and security, they're not hurt. And, and then there's the identity. There's this fourth dude, who the heck is this guy? And my goodness, he looks strange. So Nebuchadnezzar is stunned because there's this fourth man in the fire with them. Now, who is this fourth guy? Who is this uninvited guest to the fire? In verse 28, the king identifies him as an angel sent by God to serve these three men. That's Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging that. Nebuchadnezzar's phrase, a son of the God, shows the king thought this to be some sort of divine, heavenly being. Now, but it's not good to take your theology too much from a polytheist, and so let's try to understand this better from the Old Testament. This is what is called in the Old Testament a theophany. Here I'm going to give you a definition of what a theophany is. A theophany is a scene or an account of a time in which the God of the universe manifests himself physically or audibly. 
in a palpable ways that could be sensed with your eyes or your ears. And there's a whole series of theophanies in the Old Testament. B.B. Warfield, who was an Old, Old Testament scholar, said this, that the Old Testament is like a fully furnished room that is poorly lit. In other words, there are all kinds of things that you really can't see unless you open a window and let light in from the New Testament. And what New Testament scholars understand is that these theophanies are, the, are Christ revealing himself before Christ comes to earth in the, in the incarnation. Every place where God manifests himself in this physical way is a place where God is taken on flesh in a pre-incarnate way. Now that is confusing, and if you have questions about that, I'd be happy to walk through those cases. There's about four, five, six of them at least in the Old Testament, depending on how you define a theophany. But what Nebuchadnezzar sees, at least what we could say is this, that there is a man who is there to rescue and to save these Yahweh followers. And there is something stunning about this. It's that the truth and the principle is that it's not that God saves his people or rescues them all the time, but that he always goes with them into the fire. Yes, he might not save you from the fire, but he goes with you into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar said this in verse 29, for there is no God who is able to rescue this way. There's something stunning about the way this God is rescuing. Why didn't God save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? By simply reaching down, pulling them out of the fire and going, boop, they're good. Why does he show up like this? Because he's the God who enters into the fires with us. And in fact, actually, he's the God who takes the fires. What we see in Jesus in Matthew 13, Jesus is talking about the wrath of God, and he describes it this way, where we get the image of hell. He describes God's wrath as a fiery furnace. Not a pleasant image, but he says the angels are gonna come and they're gonna pick out the wicked and the oppressors and he's gonna, they're gonna put them in the fiery furnace, the fiery furnace of God's wrath. And Jesus says, I've come to take that fiery furnace for you. You know, some, some theologians have looked at what Jesus did on the night. Joel read about the temptation in the garden. You know, the next place where the evil one came to tempt Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane the night before his death. And it says that Jesus is sweating, profusely sweating. And theologians have looked at that and they've wondered, is he sweating because he's looking down into the furnace of hell that he's about to experience the very wrath of God? Jesus came to take on the ultimate furnace so that you and I, you and I never have to experience the furnace of God's wrath. He went in. This God does not just rescue us by pulling us out. He's the only God we know of who's willing to enter in. He's unlike any other God who enters into the suffering and he enters in under the pressure. Think about the pressure that these men are facing to bow and then think about that crowd chanting, crucify him. Unrelenting pressure. And so the son of, of God was forsaken on the cross and he was taken to the furnace of God's wrath so that you and I know that we will never face that furnace, but not just that, but that whatever furnace you do face in this life of suffering and difficulty, you have one who goes with you. That he is there with you in the fire and the flames. And understand this about the way God, of God as we face the furnace. God doesn't keep us out because he often does his most fantastic work in the midst of the fire, but he goes with them in the middle of it. This is the flames of fellowship. Isn't this where often even your, your human relationships are most often forged? In the, in the seasons of difficulty. And so it is with God, that God comes and walks with you. He walks with you in the midst of it. 
God didn't keep them out of the furnace, but he joined them. Diet Amon, the Dutch lady in the resistance, was thrown into a concentration camp in the Netherlands. She laid in bed for three days in an utter depression. Then she took a stone, a little rock, and she etched this in the wall of her cell. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28. They were not left alone, these men, and neither are you. And isn't that the way Christ does for us? That he doesn't keep you from loneliness, but when, he, when you are lonely, he walks with you in it. He doesn't keep you from betrayal, but he finds you in the betrayal and he goes through it with you. He doesn't prevent loss, but he comes to you in the midst of the loss and the fourth man of Daniel 3 is there beside you. And that is what is happening in Daniel 3. The, more, the, the, the fourth man comes and walks with his servants and walks us through suffering and pressure. It isn't, this is exactly what some of you have found in your own experience. That he doesn't keep you out of the operating room, but Christ finds you in the operating room. That he doesn't actually keep you out of the funeral parlor, but he stands there in the funeral parlor with you. And he trudges with you to an empty house. The fourth man is there with you also. So it says this in the Old Testament, and I've read this to some of you in deep and dark moments. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be there. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you, for I am the Lord your God, and I will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that Isaiah 43 would become our song. That we would be a people who do not whine about the fire and the flame. But we would cry out for help in the midst of it. That we would be a people who are faithful in the midst of it because we know that wherever you take us, we may not choose to go there. But you have led us there. It says in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your hand leads me. And so we trust, Lord, that you sometimes lead us and your church into seasons of difficulty in which it is hard to be a Christian. And you also lead us personally into places in where it is very difficult to be a person who trusts in you. But I pray that we would cling to your hand And we cling to the truth that you're the God who walks with us in the fire and into the flood. I pray for those who are in it today. Might you come in mighty power. May they experience you more mightily today, the sense of your presence and your delight over them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.